watching in the venue right now and those watching online at carneyefree.com. Great to be with you all. My name is Adrian and I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Carney Free and it's a joy to be back. My family and I went on a little family vacation, visited our families in different areas and great to be back with you. It was a blessing for us last weekend to listen to Pastor Brian's final message here as he preached and we listened last weekend away from you here but with you online as well. And uh, that was a great, great message from Pastor Brian, really nailed it for his final one here at the church. My toes still hurt, not sure about yours. It's a sign of a good preacher. He, uh, he stepped on our toes from John chapter 8, as that is a power-packed passage, and Brian delivered it so well. Can't wait to celebrate Brian and Lori this afternoon at 1 o'clock. As was noted already, we'd invite you to come back for that as we'll have a reception for him here, uh, some reminders of their great ministry here over the past uh, 18 years uh, of service, actually longer than that, but 18 years of service in the church, and we'll celebrate Brian and Lori uh, this afternoon at 1 o'clock. There'll be cookies and refreshments and then a program here starting just after 1 o'clock. Encourage you all to come back for that as we celebrate Brian and Lori. You know, one of Jesus' most common miracles was the healing of blind people. Did you know that? Like it happened several different times in a variety of different ways in the Gospels of Jesus Christ that he finds someone who is blind and he heals that person. And I think it's possible that he heals uh, several different blind people because that was a malady that would really marginalize someone from the culture they lived in. It would marginalize uh, someone from their community, and it's, it's a malady that many of us fear, do we not? The, the thought of becoming blind or having a child that was born blind, as we'll see in this instance, is a common fear of people across the centuries. But I think it's also likely that Jesus uh, frequently heals the blind in the Gospels because vision and blindness are incredibly powerful metaphors for the spiritual life. Vision and blindness are incredibly powerful metaphors for the spiritual life. And John 9 is this story of multiple groups of religious people who in this case were Unfortunately, though they had religion, they were blind to the work of God in their midst. God was doing a work in their midst, and they were blind to that work. And then conversely, it's also the story of a man who was born blind. Physically, he was blind, but he very much could see the work of God that was being done in his midst. Jesus is going to introduce us to each of these characters along the way, and we're going to see this blind man who is rejected by the crowd as he embraces Christ, and uh, he comes into a different kind of community. He's rejected by the crowd, rejected by the synagogue, but he comes to know Christ. I think what God would want for us today is to see ourselves in at least one of the different characters that is found in John chapter 9. Let's pray and then we'll jump in. 
Uh, Father, we thank you for this beautiful passage. We thank you for the words of Jesus that we are going to study, and we ask, God, that you would teach us from them. We're going to see a number of different characters in this passage that probably represent some of us in this room and probably represent each of us at one point of our lives or another. And we pray, God, that you would speak to us through their stories. You'd speak to us through God's miraculous power in this story that's so familiar to so many of us that perhaps we would learn to see a little bit more clearly as we consider the work of God in our lives as well. Father, we've all brought different things into the service. We're all concerned with many things. We have different anxieties and fears and concerns right now. And so we surrender them to your loving hands. You are capable of holding them. For this moment, we just want to be in the scriptures. For this moment, we just want to be taught by you. And so my prayer, God, is that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, honorable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Through Christ we pray, amen. All right, well, the first group of characters that we see in this story is the disciples. And you see them here in the first two verses of John chapter nine. They're gonna encounter a blind man and Jesus is going to coach them, teach them, direct them, redirect them in this passage. John nine, verses one and two, where we see the disciples. It says, as he, that is Jesus, as Jesus went along, he saw a man who was blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? Was it this man? Or was it his parents that he was born blind who sinned? So you imagine this portrait. They see this man who was blind and they say, look, Jesus, here's a blind man who's responsible for his disability. They don't have any compassion for him in this moment. They just say, look at this blind guy. Who can we assign blame for this man's disability? Look at this young lady in a wheelchair who sinned that put her in a wheelchair. It's that kind of thing. Look at this young boy who has Down syndrome. Was it his fault or was it his parents' fault? That's their thinking here. They want to explain away his blindness and then feel a little bit better about themselves. This man's blindness becomes an object lesson for them to talk about suffering and to assign blame. The commandment of Christian love was ignored completely by the disciples in this moment as they're just seeking to find someone to blame as they look at this man and his suffering. It seems that this is going on a lot today, that people see folks who are suffering, and the knee-jerk reaction is, whose fault is this? Have you noticed that? As opposed to a knee-jerk reaction of, wow, can I get to know your story? I'd like to learn a little bit about you. Can I have compassion for this person? The knee-jerk reaction is, whose fault is this? I heard one author recently write these words. He said, when was it that basic Christian love became so controversial? Jesus, fortunately Jesus, oh man, he's so good. He's got something to say about this to his disciples. We pick up the story there in verse three, and Jesus responds, neither. You're just wrong in your premise. Neither this man nor his parents sinned said Jesus, 
But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in this man's life. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground. He made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So the man went and he washed and he came home seen. And the miraculous work of God was, was displayed in this moment for all people to see. Now again, there's these two baloney questions that the disciples ask as they see this man's blindness and they want to have a sense of control. They want to be able to explain away this man's blindness by blaming someone, by using him as an object lesson. One of the baloney questions was like this, is it mom and dad's fault? You've heard this. This hasn't died, has it? This is a question as old as time itself. This person is disabled. This person is suffering. What did mom and dad do to get them in this spot? Sadly, this is a terribly shaming idea that has not gone away. But fortunately, I want to tell you that this idea that God punishes children for the sins of their parents is nowhere found in the New Testament. It's, it's, it's nowhere there. That God punishes children for what their parents did with some physical disability. The second baloney question is, what did this boy do to deserve this? Now, he was blind from birth, and so they must have some kind of idea in their mind that he sinned in the womb somehow, and God struck down his optical nerve in that moment of sin during the fourth month of pregnancy or something. It's bizarre, but that's what they're thinking, that perhaps this congenital, this newborn illness that resulted in blindness is this boy's fault. And Jesus' response is to clap back at his disciples and say, neither one, you are way off. He's like, what good is it to assign blame to someone rather than to express concrete love for someone? What good is it to do a philosophical speculation on someone else's suffering as opposed to extending compassion on someone? And so what Jesus does here is he says to the disciples, no, you're way off. It was neither one. It wasn't the parents that sinned. It wasn't this boy who sinned. It was neither of those. But this happened so the work of God would be displayed in his life. We're not told what exactly that is, but then Jesus goes on to bring about this beautiful work of God. Some say that um, the work of God that would be displayed in his life is God's perseverance in this man through this disability. Others would say the work of God is what Jesus is about to do. He's about to heal this man, which of course he does as he spits on the ground, he makes mud, he puts it on the man's eyes, and he heals him in this moment. One of my heroes is a woman named Johnny Erickson Tata. She's now 71 years old, but at age 17, she dove into the shallow end of a pool. And when she did, she struck her head and broke her neck and broke her spinal cord. 
and she instantly became a quadriplegic. Uh, She later became a follower of Christ, and she chose not to bemoan her state, but chose to redeem it. And now she's 71 years old. She's written many books. She's a painter. She paints with her teeth. And she's established a wonderful ministry called Johnny and Friends that helps families with kids with disabilities. And she said this, my wheelchair was the key to seeing God's power. Always shows up best in weakness. So here I sit, glad that I have not been healed on the outside, but glad that I have been healed on the inside. Healed from my own self-centered wants and wishes. Wow, to be able to say that. That God wants to heal me first and foremost, not from my physical stuff, which seems to be getting worse with age. But that's not his first priority. His first priority is to heal me on the inside. For my self-centered wants and needs, that I would begin to look more and more like Christ. The character of Christ would be revealed more and more in me. And the way that oftentimes happens is when his power is displayed in our weakness. God is most glorified, not in our strength, not in our power, not in us having it all together, not in us having perfectly able bodies, but oftentimes in our weakness. Now, the work of God was displayed in this man's life as he was healed, and sometimes God does that too. From time to time in my ministry, I've had the pleasure of witnessing a healing of some kind, In fact, a few weeks ago, we had a couple here in this church, a man who had brain cancer, and he rallied prayer partners across the nation, even across the world, and he gathered our elders together that we would come around him and pray over him with anointing oil in the words of James chapter 5, and he came to that meanwhile with the elders with his doctor's note in hand to celebrate with us that amazingly, the cancer in his brain had stopped. Praise God inexplicable. The doctor could not explain it. He couldn't explain it except for this is the work of God in my life and I'm going to praise him. God can do that. God does that from time to time. But I think it's possible God doesn't do that more often or as often as we would like because what he wants is what Johnny Erickson Tata is talking about there. He wants for his strength to be manifest in our weakness. And he wants to sustain us. Sometimes God heals by physically healing. Sometimes God heals by sustaining. When someone asks me for prayer for healing, I always listen to the Holy Spirit. And as I listen, frequently I will pray for healing for that person. But I also typically will pray for God's sustaining power in that person's life. Because more frequently than the example I just shared of this man who was healed of brain cancer is what you and I have experienced that God sustains us in our weaknesses such that we are conformed more and more to the likeness of his son. And as he does so, I pray that no less we would clap and say, praise God. Okay, no claps. Okay. (laughs) We like the healing much more, don't we? All right, that's Jesus' interaction with the disciples. He says, no, you got it all wrong. Stop assigning blame. God's power is made perfect in your weakness, and God would sustain us and grant us increased, surpassing peace through challenging circumstances as we lean on him, and then he would be glorified even in us. 
The next group of people that we run into is the Pharisees. Can you tell me who is it that Jesus tangles with most in the Gospel of John? Oh, it's the Pharisees again and again and again. They are the villain in the story. You see this everywhere in the Gospel of John. The Pharisees were in the synagogue seven days a week and twice on Saturday. They were the folks who were teaching Saturday school. They were the folks who knew their Bibles inside and out. They were full of all kinds of self-righteousness. They stayed away from the dirty people out there. They stayed far away from the Gentiles. They were the self-righteous ones. They had it all together. And they were particularly good at noticing other people's sins. Don't you love that guy? That was the Pharisees. They seemed to know everything about God without actually knowing God. And they were similarly unconcerned with the man's disability. Their concern, as opposed to the disciples, was not a philosophical speculation. Their concern was preserving the system. There's this system that we are used to, the way of getting things done, system that God does, and God always must do that, and their concern was preserving that system at all costs, to go back to the, thing, the way things always were. To them, change is like the worst four-letter word. That's the Pharisees. And we pick up the story with them in verse 13. It says, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been born blind. It wasn't actually the disciples who brought this man to the Pharisees. It was his neighbors. We skipped over the neighbors. They're in here as well. You can read the passage later, but we're on the Pharisees now. Uh, the neighbors brought to the Pharisees the man who had been born blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Now, talk about straining at the gnat. Here's a man who's just been healed. He was blind, and now he has 20-20 vision. And rather than saying, oh, can you tell me a little bit more about your story that I could share in your joy? Like, how awesome is this? You were blind, and now you can see. Let's celebrate together. Instead, they say, did this happen on the Sabbath? Let's find that man who did this on the Sabbath, that we might prosecute him. And you know you're not allowed to be healed on the Sabbath. Like the absurdity of this from the Pharisees. Instead, they're fighting to dismiss this man, fighting to dismiss the healing, fighting to preserve the way things are done around here. Healing's not allowed on the Sabbath day. And they debate like this on and on for the next passage, the next verses, all the way down to verse 30. And the man answered, after all this debate back and forth with the Pharisees, verse 30, now this is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, where Jesus comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you are steeped in sin from birth. So they go back over to the way the disciples well were thinking. Okay, you, you, like you sinned in the womb, or your parents sinned, and that's why you're blind. 
How can you dare lecture us? You're steeped in sin far from birth. How dare you lecture us? And they throw him out of the synagogue. Okay, so he's healed. And because he won't renounce his healing, he won't renounce the healer, they say, you're out of our community. Yuck. Oh, my goodness. Here's a really good prayer. Father, please protect me from the sin of self-righteousness. Say that out loud with me. Please protect me from the sin of self-righteousness. That's their downfall. It's the self-righteousness that God is not allowed to do things in a different way than we think he should be doing things. It's the sin of self-righteousness that says we have to be kind of the policeman over everything that happens on the Sabbath day. It's the sin of self-righteousness that says I need to be control all the time. There are these hyper-controlling religious authorities that feel threatened by God doing something that is different than what they expected, and they just want things to go back to the way they always were. They're infuriated because they cannot control God, and the result is they miss the new thing that God is doing. May we never love so much our traditions that we miss the new thing that God is doing. Now, the parents, unfortunately, get wrapped up into the controversy as well. And the third group of people that we see here in this episode is the parents as they are thrust into it all. And the Pharisees come and question them. Look back at verse 19 now. And the Pharisees say, okay, is this your son? Is this the one that you say was born blind? Maybe you've just been making it up for the past 38 years to trick us. Is this your son that you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? (laughs) We know he's our son, the parents answered. And we know he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah, would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, go ask him. They're just common folk like us. And they're wrapped up in this. They want to be able to celebrate with their son. And on one of the days that should have been like one of the most happy days of their lives, one of the best celebration days for their family, instead they are living in fear of the Pharisees who are seeking to control them and control the narrative. I got to tell you, be very wary of spiritual leaders who are hyper-controlling, always trying to manipulate and force people how to think. It's very dangerous, and it leads to spiritual abuse. And that's precisely what's happening here. They're so scared of these religious leaders that they will be excommunicated from their synagogue, excommunicated from their community if they don't fall into line with group thinking and with the way things always were that they can't even acknowledge the work of God in their son's life. Be very wary of hyper-controlling leaders. 
I've said this before a number of times in this room, but the only biblical form of control is self-control. I'm telling you, you cannot control another person. You cannot do it. You cannot make things the way they always were. The only biblical form of control is self-control. Let's say it together. The only biblical form of control is Amen, amen, I heard you in the venue, thank you. That's, that's the only biblical form of control, it's the fruit of the Spirit, is my self-control. I cannot control anyone else, I can guide people, but we can't control other people's thinking, and the downfall of the Pharisees was their prideful self-control, that God wasn't operating the way they wanted, and this family was not operating the way they wanted. The disciples, the Pharisees, and even to an extent the parents, to a lesser extent the parents, are the seen blind in this story. They all have visual sight, but they're blind. And the parents, at the very least, they're scared. They're scared to name the thing that God has done in their son's life. But the blind man, he's blind, but he has sight. And he's healed physically, and then he gains this spiritual sight that's just a remarkable example for all of us. Take a look at the progression of the man's spiritual sight in this story. Again, first he's healed physically. Presumably, he's not even a follower of Christ at that point. It doesn't look like he's even a follower of Christ. And Jesus comes in and he heals him physically. And then he starts to be healed spiritually as well. You look at verse 11. Um, He's asked by, the, by his neighbors in this case, who did this? How did this happen? And he says, verse 11, the man they named Jesus made some mud and put it in my eyes and I didn't know what he was doing when he spit on the ground and, and then he picked up this mud and he, he rubbed it in my eyes and I had no idea what he was doing, but he's just a man. It, it was that man Jesus, verse 11. Then it goes on in verse 17 and uh, the Pharisees are questioning him and they say, who was this person? And the blind man says, he's a prophet. First, he was just a man. Second, he's a prophet. Then third, you go on to verse 33, and he's again debating well with the Pharisees, and he says, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So third, now he's from God. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a man. He is from God. He still isn't quite a follower of Christ. He hasn't bent his knee to worship Christ. And then verse 35, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out of the synagogue. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? The Son of Man is a title for Jesus, prophesied way back in Daniel. The Son of Man would come in victory. Who is he? Verse 36, who is he, sir? The man asked. He says, no, Jesus is. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. From a man to a prophet to a man sent from God to God himself in flesh, and I now worship you. This is a progression that some of us go through that we perhaps even in this room are those, we're not really sure what we believe about Jesus. Well, could it be that today Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart saying, would you come in and worship me? That I'm your creator, I'm your sustainer, I'm the one that has come to give you salvation, would you come in and worship me? 
And for those of us who are followers of Christ, typically the way we grow with Christ is little bit by little bit, much like this man, there is a progressive opening of the eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus as we worship him a little bit more and more each and every day. That we would grow with him, that we would enjoy him, that we would study his word, that we get his word into us, and we become more like him as we do so. Now this man, he pays a price The day he finds salvation is also the same day he's excommunicated from the synagogue. He loses the crowd on the day that he finds Christ. Sometimes you need to lose the crowd in order to walk with Christ. Is there anybody here with me today? Sometimes you gotta lose the crowd in order to walk with Christ. Some of us need to stop swaying with the crowd to the right or to the left in order to walk with Christ. Sometimes you need to go alone in order to walk with Christ. Sometimes you need to buck tradition in order to seriously walk with Christ and what he's doing today. This is God's word for us today. Sometimes, my friends, you need to expect the unexpected in order to follow Christ today. And I'm telling you all the time, All the time, the prerequisite for spiritual sight is admitting one's own spiritual blindness. The starting point, the beginning, the prerequisite of spiritual sight is admitting that outside of God's love, outside of God's salvation given to me through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm blind. I'm blind spiritually, and I'll be blind to God through life and until I die and after the grave as well if I do not bend my knee to him. You see, the consistent word of the Scriptures is God exalts the humble, and he humbles those who are self-exalted. Those who say, I got it all together on my own, they will get no spiritual sight. The consistent word of Scripture is he gives sight to those who admit, I am blind without you, God. And he blinds those who say, I can see on my own, I really don't need you, God. He humbles the proud. And he exalts the humble. Across the New Testament, Jesus gives to those who come to him with empty hands. Once again, Johnny Erickson taught us, said it so beautifully from her wheelchair, maybe the truly handicapped people are the ones who don't need God as much. 71 years old, 54 years in a wheelchair, maybe the truly handicapped people are those who believe they don't need God as much. Jesus is imploring us in John chapter 9 that those who would admit their blindness see and those who are convinced that they've got it all together will not be able to see at all. The invitation is that we would see Christ, that we would trust in him, that we would trust his word, that we would bow to him, that we would follow him, that we would admit every day we're needy for him. 
Let me just close with a few questions that this passage triggered for me this past week. The first one is this, am I open to what God is doing now? Am I just looking in the past and say, God, I want things to go back to the way they were? I want things to go back to 2019. Adrian, are you open to what God is doing now? Are you open to the pruning that God is doing in you, in the church? God is pruning those who are not serious about Him. Am I open to what God is doing today? Or am I stuck in tradition, the way things always were? I got to tell you that when I got news six weeks ago that Pastor Brian was leading I, it took all of my energy not to convince him that he misheard God. Because in that moment, I was not open to what God was doing in your life. And I had to force myself to trust that God was doing something new. And I can see now that there's going to be a day in the not-too-distant future that Brian's going to lead some people to Christ who are on their deathbed as a hospice chaplain. And I can trust that God is doing something new. And I better be open to that. Begrudgingly. (laughs) I can't control God. Like, the early church referred to the Holy Spirit as a wild goose. That you can't contain him. You can't control him. You can't manipulate him. He's going to jump around and do what he wants. And you got to be open to the new thing that he's doing. Question number two, do I prioritize and extend compassion to the marginalized, whoever the marginalized are around me? Friends, you, you simply cannot read the Gospels of Jesus Christ and miss this. Jesus prioritizes those on the margins, He loves all people, but he extends himself especially to those on the margins. He sees people who are sick. He sees people hungry. He sees people who are disabled. He sees people that are immigrants. He sees people that are widows, and he goes to them, and he gives healing to them. He touches them again and again and again. He extends himself to those on the margins. Adrian, do I extend compassion? My friends, do you extend compassion to those in the margins? Or do you look to assign blame to those on the margins? Is the knee-jerk reaction to assign blame or is the knee-jerk reaction to say, how can I love? Can I get to know your story a little bit better? The disciples, of course, looked to assign blame and Jesus corrected them. It was Jesus, of course, who said, Whatever you did for the least of these, brothers and sisters of mine, those who are imprisoned, those who are naked, those who are homeless, those who are widowed, those who are left out, those who are on the margins, those who are disabled, whatever you did for the least of these, you did it also for me. I've had two instances in the past couple months where adults with disabilities have said that they sometimes feel invisible at this church. Two times recently. 
that adults with disabilities that I sometimes feel invisible here. That's not every person matters. We're a community where we say and we believe it's our conviction that every person matters, particularly those on the margins, because they're rejected so much. Had another instance with a family in this church, beautiful family, this church, who came here after being at another church for a number of years. And part of the reason they came to this church is because there was a program for their kids, a program for their child who has a disability, which enabled their child to worship and enabled mom and dad to be able to worship as well, to get a little break and to be able to worship. And for six years, they haven't had that. And now they've come here and they have it. Praise God that they have that every week. And we want to be that kind of church that's always extending ourselves to those who are on the margin because we believe every person matters. And then finally, this is the third question that I was rocked by though this week. Is my spiritual vision getting better or is it just kind of staying the same? Is my spiritual vision getting better? And once again, this man, he's healed physically, but then he's healed spiritually. And progressively, little bit by little bit, his vision becomes clearer until the point that he has 20-20 vision and he realizes that Jesus is Lord and God and Savior and he worships him. And this is a beautiful portrait of what it is for us that we would bend our knees to Christ each and every day and little bit by little bit, our vision gets clearer. We see God as he is. We recognize what he wants from us. We obey him all the more, and we grow in relationship with him as we see him more clearly, little bit by little bit, always moving forward, never staying where we are, never looking back, looking ahead to the prize which God calls us heavenward in Christ Jesus. That's my prayer for you and for me. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you for your great love for us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you that Jesus reveals himself to people slowly but surely over time. And he was patient with this man who really didn't understand who you were, Lord Jesus. But you revealed yourself to him, and you loved him right where he was, and you made this blind man see. Physically, what a miracle. Spiritually, even a greater miracle. And for those of us in this room today who have been stagnant in our faith, we just ask that you would give us more spiritual sight, that we would not stop, that we would not look back to the past and say, I wish things could be the way they were, but instead we would look toward the future and look into this present moment and say, God, would you do a work in me today? Would you please, Father, would you do a work in our family today? Would you do a work in our church? Would you do a work in our community today? Would you give us more spiritual sight for the work that you are doing today? Father, to the extent that we are controlling or manipulative, prideful, or self-righteous, we repent. We repent. We ask for your forgiveness for that. And ask that you would make us supple and humble and gentle and merciful. And by your grace, we would be instruments of your peace and your love. Maybe there's someone here who knows that they are spiritually blind, that they do not have answers spiritually, 
that they are indeed far from God, that they cannot earn God's approval, that that's impossible. And maybe today would be the day that you say, God, give me spiritual sight. Please forgive me of my sins. I trust in you through Jesus Christ, my Lord. You don't need to know all the answers. Just as this man didn't know all the answers, you don't need to know all the answers. God will have you as you are. If you look to him, you look to the cross and you say, I trust in you. Please forgive me, God. And he will, from first to last, he will. Would you be my savior, God? And he will, from first to last, he will. If that's you this morning, would, would you just, as every head is bowed right now, and you, you want to actually embrace Christ as your Savior, would you just let me know that right now? People aren't looking at you. We don't want to embarrass you in any way. But would, would you just let me know that by raising your hand right now, if that's you, that I'm ready to embrace Christ, and I've been far from Christ. I don't know Christ. He is not my Savior, but today I want him to be my Savior. Sister, I see you in the front. Thank you. Thank you. The Lord be with you. Brother, I see you over on the side, thank you. The Lord be with you, brother. Yes. Let's just pray with these friends who raised their hand. Would you please pray with me? Just pray silently with me as I pray. And you too, if you would just follow me in your heart as I pray for you, okay? Please follow me in your heart as I pray for you. God, I admit that what you say about me is true. I admit that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I cannot earn my way to God. And so I ask that you forgive me through Jesus Christ, the Lord. Please forgive me, God. I trust you, God, that you took my place on the cross. I trust you, Jesus, that you died for me. The greatest example of love, you died for me. Thank you, Jesus, you took my sin. I commit now to following you, Lord Jesus. You not only save me from sin, but you are my Lord. And so I worship you. Thank you, God, for your forgiveness. Thank you for your love. Oh, thank you, Father, for bringing this daughter into your family. Thank you, God, for bringing this son into your family. We give you glory and praise today. Let all God's people say amen. Amen. Give God praise for what he's done. Would you stand and sing with us or kneel if you would like, sit if you'd like, take this time to worship God.